Hello and welcome to Out of the Frame, conversations about photography. I'm Pia Johnson, your host, and this podcast features conversations about photography, creativity and the world we live in. I'll be talking to other photographers, curators, academics and researchers about their work, artistic process and how they feel about contemporary photography today. Out of the Frame acknowledges the people of the Woiwurrung and Bunwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation, on whose unceded lands we record each episode from. We respectfully acknowledge ancestors and elders, past and present. It was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to this episode of Out of the Frame Conversations about Photography. Today's guest is Morgana McGee, who is based in Melbourne, Australia, living and working on the unceded land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, the foothills of the Dandenong Ranges. Her practice explores human relations to the more-than-human world using traditional photographic practices in non-traditional ways. In 2022, she published her debut monograph, Extraordinary Experiences, with Tall Poppy Press, which was nominated for the Australian Photo Book of the Year. Enjoying the process of bookmaking so much, Morgana joined Tall Poppy Press with Matt Dunn and has since published Beware of People Who Dislike Cats in 2023. In addition, Phenomena, a collaboration with Italian publishing house Origini Edzioni, was launched at Polycopies 2023. Her work has been awarded and exhibited, both nationally and internationally recognised, by institutions such as the British Journal of Photography, the National Portrait Gallery Australia and Miami Art Week. She is regularly commissioned for editorial and large-scale community arts projects. Her images have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Age, Art in Australia magazine, amongst others. Morgana is the Major Discipline Coordinator for Photo Media at Swinburne University of Technology, and is currently undertaking her PhD at RMIT University, Not Tame Enough, which questions how colonial photographic practices have misrepresented the kangaroo. Hi Morgana, thanks so much for coming in today. Hi Pia, thank you so much for having me. Look, you began as a photojournalist, portrait and social documentary photographer whose work I admired for many years. I'd love for you to talk about those beginning years and how they've shaped the photographer that you are now. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting question because I think it harkens back a long time ago when I studied photography. So like a lot of photographers, I fell in love with photography as a teenager. From the age of about 15, I realised that it was probably the area that I wanted to go into. And as this was 20 years ago, photography very much felt like a viable career path. And when I say viable, it seemed like a, pl- a way that I could earn a decent income, you know, work consistently, all of those things that you sort of look for in a job at that age. So when I finished high school, I went and I studied at TAFE, which was back then a two-year diploma in which I learned all about, you know, darkroom processes and different photographers. And I absolutely loved studying. I thrived being able to, to, you know, look at photography, talk about photography and make photography for two years with like-minded people. But as I got closer to the end of my qualification, a little thing happened called digital photography. So I'd, I'd kind of hoped that I would become a darkroom technician, to be honest. And then suddenly this digital revolution began And I started to realise, okay, there is an entire industry that is changing dramatically. And how am I, you know, going to be able to to work as part of it? Um, I guess another thing that I should say, and I should say this time, um, is that I have always been a person that has needed to work. Photography was always considered very much a career path for me. So I always knew I was going to have to make an income out of it. So when I realised that being a darkroom technician possibly wasn't going to be a viable career path, I had to look around and work out what sort of photography I could possibly do as commercial work. I was never going to be a fashion photographer. I had no interest in it. And so the the kind of the option that was offered to me was photojournalism. 
So I was very fortunate that I got a cadetship and I started working, you know, from a very young age in newspapers. But I think what's interesting about it is it was always my commercial practice. So it was always the job that I had to make money. It was exciting. It was interesting. But it probably was never really where my heart was, which meant that I would work during the week and on the weekends I'd, I'd continue to work on my own series, my own photographic series. Can I ask, just in terms of the digital film thing there, were you, just to clarify, were you working digitally in the cadetship and through photojournalism? Yes. And then at home, on the weekends, you were working in film? Yes. Yeah. So I had my little dark room in the laundry. So I'd be be working on film for what I felt was my personal work. And at work, I was very lucky that the company that I worked for had cutting edge cameras, which were about two megapixels back then, but probably cost about (laughs) $50 million. And that's where I learned Photoshop. It's where I learned how to be a very quick photographer. It also taught me all of the skills that I needed to be a functioning human in the world. It taught me how to talk to people. It taught me how to command a room. But it always felt like my commercial work. Then I kind of moved into this documentary practice, which interestingly also I think was an extension of that way of thinking. Photojournalism is intrinsically, you have to be very quick. It is very kind of, um, it can be very kind of fast foodie. You know, it's in and out very quickly. Documentary photography always seemed like this kind of longer form way that I could work, which suited a little bit more my personality and the stories that I was interested in. But I still think that though those kind of ways of working were both really interesting training for what I do now, truthfully, I feel like I needed to do that to learn to have the confidence to make the sort of work that I make now. But uh, do you think that that history, the application, I think all those skills allow you to not just make the work that you're doing now but also maybe when you do get those commissions or big pieces or shows elsewhere, you actually can put all of that into those things still or do you think it's actually you've moved beyond those original kind of skills? I think it's what it, what it was able to give me is a degree of separation from my commercial practice and my personal practice. And that has been really invaluable for me because I knew that I couldn't have years and years and years to work on projects. I knew that there had to be an outcome. And I think that for me, especially as a young photographer, really kind of shaped the way that I work now. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think that's really interesting too because... I think there's many photographers out there that do separate those things and then there's other people that it's way more blended Mm. or maybe kind of messy or what have you. But I think the thing that is interesting is the work that I, you know, I look back at the early documentary work Mm. and there's a clarity and a gaze that is really raw and emotional and it really kind of comes from, I guess, that place of authenticity and engagement with your subject. You see that in the very famous portrait stuff that you've done, but I feel like you really see that now in the work that you're making around landscape and animals and families and human relationships without an our impact mm-hmm. still possesses that raw emotion. How do projects start for you, whether they are those earlier ones or more recently kind of longer bodies of work? Do you wake up and go, oh, I need to take this photo or is it, you know, I've conceptually thought through all these things and I'm going to go out and make those images. How did, how did projects start for you? Look, I wish I was a bit more conceptual and I was a bit more planned. But what, I think what I will say is that um, I'm a person that feels best when she's making. So I, and I, I don't mean to sound this, make this sound like a flex, but I'm at a point in my life now where I can make photos every day. And that brings me an immense amount of joy and immense amount of calm into my daily life and and my, you know, professional job and my relationships with people. So I think when I was a documentary photographer and I was working really in portrait series, the thing that I suppose, and you were very kind to say what you said about the work, but I think the thing that I really had going for me is I'm very tenacious and I would go back and I would photograph and I would build really great relationships with people because it's just kind of, you know, what happens if you're around them all the time. And I think that was really the strength of the work more than anything else. There was some series that I worked on where I feel like I lost the kind of story as I went along because the relationships became much more important to me than the actual story. And so I guess what I see as a parallel between that way of working and the way that I work now 
is <laughs> that I still fo- I, I photograph in the same place every day. So the mm. work that we'll talk about later on has all been made close to home and it's a place that I'm familiar with, I'm comfy with, I'm cosy with. I have gotten to a point where I feel completely comfortable in that landscape in the same way that quite often when I was photographing people long term, they certainly have to be comfortable with you, but you also need to be comfortable with them. So I feel like that approach certainly set me up for where I am now. And I think it gave me, I think that tenacity continues through more so than thinking, oh, I need to make this particular image. It's like, oh, maybe today I can make a really great image. I need to go out. I need to try this. I need to, you know, try and fulfil it, try and be satisfied. Mm. And I never am, (laughs) but at least I try. It's interesting. I feel the same. Mm. I need to be making work all the time. And lots of people always go to me, oh, how do you do it all? But I'm just not me without making Mm. images. But for me, I think it could be any type of image, you know, whether it's commercial or mm. artistic. But I think it's really interesting about that thing of saying you'll feel comfortable in the landscape of which you're photographing in and making images and that connection. You've also photographed your family. Mm. You know, and some families are more comfortable than others. <laughs> but, you know, I think and it's been really interesting for me photographing my family or actually utilising photographs of my family as a way of talking to those relationships. But one of the first big projects of yours that is I guess really emotional and I yeah hope you don't mind me bringing it up is when you documented your dad's battle with Mm. cancer but on top of that you've also photographed your mum you photographed Mm. your brother and his kids what's it like to include them in those projects Mm. or have them centered around and I guess revealing that really personal side of your life yeah it's a really You know, it's a really interesting thing, photographing family, because I think you just nailed it there where you said some families feel really comfy and some (laughs) don't. And some people don't feel comfy within families. So my my dad had been sick my whole life. He was an alcoholic and my brother and I were primary carers for him. So when I photographed him during what became his kind of last round of cancer battling, for lack of a better word, it was not something that was new to me, but I... think there was something in needing to photograph it which was new for me and new for both of us as well so that body of work was all shot on a roller flex so it's a six by six format black and white film I hand developed it all I think I might have even used a dark I did use a darkroom to print back then and I really do think that when I was making it I wasn't conscious of what I was doing but I feel like I was using the camera as a shield I think that on some level I knew this was like the last time I was older, I was 25 when he passed away. So my involvement with the hospitals became a lot more intense as well. Unfortunately, my dad was quite a difficult person. So my brother and I were called in a lot to sort of manage him, I would say. And I think at the time, I think I remember describing to my now husband that I was doing it to like get something out of it so that I could feel like, you know, this time that I was spending on him rather than photographing was worth it. But I think that was all bravado. I think it was really about having um, the opportunity to sort of savour these moments as uncomfortable and unpleasant and horrific as hospitals and cancer care is. And it was also interesting because it was a chance for my dad to see what I was doing. And there was a photo I took of him going to an MRI machine, which is a horrific experience. And it's very, my dad was very claustrophobic and he was scared, but he'd sort of said to the nurses, oh, she's coming in and taking photos. He didn't ask, my dad wasn't big on asking. He's like, she's coming in and she's taking photos. And I think for him, it was very comforting to have his daughter there, but also to know that I was, yeah, I had my camera, I was okay. So that was my first experience of photographing family. Like, it was kind of extreme. Wow. Yeah, I was... also want to just pause there for a moment and just acknowledge how brave and courageous oh, that is because I think there is a, a layer of witnessing, there, there is a layer of protecting, mm. but also you weren't photographing fun times. It's like this is mortality mm. at the edge mm. and in an environment, you know, you say that you're older, 25, but still, you know, yeah. a baby. That's a baby. And... The responsibility of care mm. and also that thing of going, yeah, I could imagine you just standing there with the rollie just going, <laughs> I'm funneling it all into this camera and whatever's going on this film and it's like the tears, the, you know, mm. the nervous energy, the anxiety that, and also the imminent death, mm-hmm. you know, is, yeah, pretty intense thing. And then to, on top of that, then share it with the world. Mm. You know, that's really brave. Yeah, thank you. 
and yeah, I think a, I think that act of witnessing and documenting, and I, I know in terms of like very, there's lots of photography around social documentary and photojournalism where it's like, do I help the person? Mm. Do I photograph the person? You know, or that that conundrum and very well versed and articulated topic. But when it's so personal. Mm. It kind of it sounds like it was so blurry, mm. you know, it was this role but also a dedication to your mm-hmm. dad but a, you putting yourself in there and, you know, in a way he was kind of proud. Yeah, mm. not, not I'm asking. It's like this is my daughter. She's yeah. going to take photos. It's like this is her role. This is, this is how we're doing it mm. and gave you agency to mm. do that, which is also really lovely. And I think there's something, it's interesting when you mention like you can imagine me there with the role of flex because I think there's something, yeah, there was something about using the formats that I use as well. Mm. It wasn't a snapshot. It wasn't 35. I mean, it, was, it still would have been filmed back then, 35mm film, but I, it's, there's still this sort of snapshot to it. But using a camera like that where you have to literally, like you said, look down, I was shielded. I was looking through a viewfinder and I think that was probably my first experience of, of really fully understanding how important photography was to me. Had I not photographed my dad, of course, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. But having those images, doing that at that time, I think just really made me understand that photography is really central to who I am. It wasn't really a conscious decision to photograph him. It wasn't, I mean, it was conscious as in I put the camera in my bag, but it wasn't something I ever asked him. It wasn't something I ever discussed. It was like, like, I'm going to photograph you, Dad. And, you know, I have to look after you on the weekends. I've had to do it for a long time. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And how was it when you photographed your mum? Because that was the next person. Yeah. So it's been an interesting thing photographing my mum because when I started photographing her, I was using the same format. So I was using the the roller flex, but it was colour, which was, like you know, a really big shift for me, really <laughs> busting out and doing something crazy. Yeah. But it was quite interesting as well because I think the camera for her was a chance for her to really perform for me. So when I look back at that series now, which I don't know if it was that successful, I didn't, wasn't doing it for that long either, but the images are quite performative. So she's performing as the woman that she is but also as being more than my mother, I would say, and I feel like I was kind of acquiescing to that um, by photographing. We were using a lot of kind of totems of my mum's from Cyprus, so of her heritage. She's very disconnected from her heritage as well and I'm completely disconnected from it. I don't speak Cypriot. I've never been, unfortunately. So it was an interesting thing to kind of go, well, mum, I'm interested in you and your culture. And I think she... I mean, I don't know if she's proud of the photos. I don't know that she likes the photos, but I think there was something about being photographed and something about photographing my family that brings them in to this whole huge part of my personality that really they've never experienced Mm. before. So I saw that work for a show that I curated Mm -hmm. you into, Family Mantle, a few years ago. And I think the thing that came across was your mum's presence in it, like her gaze is really strong Mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, I have met your mum in real life and she's a very unique energy, Mm. like very powerful energy. But in the photos, I think the idea of it being performative, I didn't really realise. But that to me, it really does feel like her, like she's just going, this is who Mm -hmm. I am. And it's really strong Mm -hmm. and it's slightly uncomfortable sometimes. But then, you know, I think one of the objects was a pomegranate. Mm -hmm. There was some flower. There's a a range of different things Mm -hmm. and they're quite close to you. So it does feel like you're like literally in her presence. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're very different to work with your dad, Mm -hmm. you know. So that's another really interesting. And then now in um, Extraordinary Experiences, Mm -hmm. you put images of your niece and nephew Mm -hmm. and your brother too, Mm -hmm. if I'm correct. Yes. So how is photographing them? Well, actually, so I began photographing... I began photographing my mum in maybe 2018. I'm I'm not great with years anymore. And then I moved on to photographing my brother and his children as part of the Masters of Photography, actually, which I did at RMIT. So I was making a project uh, that was initially about my mother and then I kind of realised it was about my family and I realised, no, it's about my grief. (laughs) So it it was a lot to unpack in two years. But I remember sitting with my supervisor and showing her what I had done at the time And then I just sort of said to her, I think I need to photograph my brother. But a bit of background to that is unfortunately things had happened when my father passed away. My brother and I hadn't spoken for 10 years, like not a word. Wow. I am, for anyone who knows me, I am stubborn and I do like, when I I shut down, I shut down and I really did. So it had literally been a decade since I had spoken to him. 
And I was like, no, I need to photograph him. Wow. That's a big step. And not only do I need to photograph him, I need to do it on 8x10 because I need to go and I need to do this in a way that feels important and reverential and painful for myself and complicated. And but so also it, another shield. Yes. Oh, my – and the biggest one you can find. <laughs> so I called my brother, who's actually a lovely person, a very lovely person, and I was like, I'm going to come and take your photo. He's like, great, come over, we'll make you lunch. And it was the weirdest thing. He lives in regional Vic and I drove out there and I hadn't spent that much time with his kids because, you know, I hadn't spoken to him. And it was this totally bizarre thing where, yeah, I had this giant camera. My niece and nephew were kissing and cuddling me. You know, kids are beautiful. And then I'm, I'm really looking at my brother for the first time in 10 years, looking him dead in the eye through this viewfinder, telling him to stay still. And he did. And it was this really beautiful exchange, I think. And I remember on the drive home, him texting me and saying, it was so special to see you at work. And that meant so much to me because I think there is that thing about, you know, when you, you exist in a family as one person and I'm probably the bratty daughter or annoying <laughs> sister, right? <laughs> like, and then to sort of be seen as, as the Morgana that other people know me as because, you know, yes, being a photographer is 90% of my personality. Yeah. It felt really special. And the, the photo I took of him, I love. It's a photo. It's um, It's inside. It's everything you shouldn't do with an 8 by 10 <laughs> But it worked. Like it's yeah. totally and in focus. St- and he's really still. still. Yeah. And, and then that kind of grew into me photographing his kids yeah. as well. So he's, my niece, Athena, is, has just turned 10 and Hector is 12. Um, so they're both kind of, you know, on the cusp of new things now. But photographing them as well was a way for me to pay them reverence as my Mm. family, to sort of make up for lost time and also to be able to give something to my brother and his wife and say, yes, maybe maybe the first 10 years of, or, you know, there there was 10 years that we were estranged, but I'm making up for it now. And they were making up for it to me as well, if that makes sense. It was this beautiful exchange of here are my children, you want to make art with them, I'm going to let you back in my life and I'm going to let you do that. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. pick up the word grief there because mm-hmm. I feel like there I guess gosh so how long is it now maybe five years that you've been kind of down this track of work that's looking at grief and definitely darkness and I think that idea of the big camera that you lug around and I have seen you well seen photos I should say of you lugging around and I have seen the camera but this very old traditional photographic equipment that ends up you have a lot of dark images even though I know you shoot during the day. Mm-hmm. So it feels like there is a heaviness and a weight. Um, there is a grief in there. There's a... I feel like it's pointing to something that we as audience members or viewers of your work make us feel like we need to head into the darkness. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain a little bit more how that came about or how that kind of... I don't want to call it aesthetic, but it is kind of an aesthetic. Mm. It's a kind of chosen form. And I go back to that image, that idea of being raw and your images being quite evocative. But I feel like that heaviness and the darkness is also coming out of, yeah, they're black and white, Mm. monochrome. Yeah, why that decision and and what is it relating to or what are you trying to talk to there? Well, it's interesting actually that the shift back to black and white for me sort of happened at a really tumultuous time in my life and I think it just felt comforting. I was still photographing every day because that's what I do. But I think there was something about sort of stepping back into black and white photography, which is how I fell in love with photography like many of us did, that felt very comforting and very pure at a time when I needed that, I would say. And the darkness is interesting because I do photograph during the day and I had a, um, a beautiful message on Instagram, sorry to call out this person, the other day who was saying, oh, I can imagine you standing there for hours in the fog, you know, waiting for the right moment. And I, I didn't, this is a response to them now, I suppose. I was like, no, no, I'm there with my dog and I've got like 10 minutes before I go to work <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, and I'm like, it, you know, it's it's chaos. It's always chaos. But it's interesting because then, then I look at the photos and I'm like, oh, they're still and so peaceful <laughs> and, and so I know calm. it wasn't like, it's so calm. 
But I think there's something in embracing darkness, which is really important to me. And I guess going back to that kind of earlier questions about photojournalism, interestingly, even though I photographed a lot of dark things, you're working for a client. So everything's got to be very clear and concise and understandable. And I think with this work, it's been a beautiful thing to have the chance to flip that on its head and make work that I mean, you've seen the place that I photograph. It doesn't, I have, it doesn't yes. look like that. No. So I think to be able to almost imprint how I feel about that place on the images has marked this change in my aesthetic, which I don't think will ever... I, I feel like the work I make now is very reflective, actually, of who I am as a person, which is interesting because I am friendly and I am... I think I'm funny. <laughs> You're funny <laughs> and friendly. <laughs> but like everything in life, there is shades of everything in me and there's also a lot of darkness in me and I'm a person that leans towards melancholy and I think having photography as an outlet to share that has been incredibly healing for me as well. In Paper Journal and another podcast that you did called Create Photography, you have mentioned that your work is preoccupied with the beauty of the melancholy. What do you mean by that? Well, I think you know, melancholy is a state that is very human and very natural. It's something that we don't think that necessarily the non-human world feels, but it's something that humans can definitely lean towards. But I think it was in the, oh, this is testing my, my knowledge, but there was a definite shift in Western culture where happiness became the goal of life. So you have to be happy. Okay. <laughs> be happy all the time. I know this sounds... Or is it like the measure of success? The measure happiness. of success is happiness. Okay. And all you want is happiness and fulfilment. But I don't know that you can have that also without having melancholy, but I also don't know that happiness needs to be the only place where you sit and almost enjoy. Mm -hmm. I think you, you can, maybe enjoy is the wrong word, but I think you can find comfort in melancholy. And I think melancholy is a really beautiful state. I think it's the state of reflection. I think it's the state of sometimes loneliness or aloneness. Um, I'd say more aloneness than loneliness actually. And I think that it is a state that a lot of us sit in a lot more than we would kind of care to um, admit in polite society. But I really do think it's a beautiful space. I think that, you know, life is finite. Death is permanent. And I certainly, I mean, you know, the, the questions around grief and a lot of my work is sort of preoccupied with grief. And I suppose what exists after grief and what exists on, on the land after grief and, and the idea of being haunted and the idea of the eternal. And these are all really big feelings and, and um, concepts to think about that for me sort of don't sit in, they certainly don't sit in polite society. Like no one wants to sit at a party with a girl who's talking about grief <laughs> and melancholy, you know, and I go right there. I'll sit next <laughs> okay, to you. Thank you. Yeah. But I think being able to explore it through art is so important because I think it's this incredibly human thing that people don't want to talk about and no one wants to be with, like, Debbie Downer. But it's been interesting with this work because this work has had a bigger response than anything I've ever done in 20 years. And I think it's because it opens up those conversations about darkness that people actually want to have. It's funny that you say that, though, because I feel like, you you know, if you've done any 101 in art history... Mm -hmm. or even photography, you know, if you'd be more specific than that, there's so much darkness there. Mm -hmm. There are all those stories of melancholy. There are all those existential kind of moments. Um, and so for me, I feel very at home within mm -hmm. those images and I, I can lean in and I can feel like there's space for me but also it points to the world we live in and, you know, especially in this particular moment, it's difficult. Mm. And it's complex and traumatic and I think that the images are beautiful and they let me see the beauty in the natural world mm. but they also, yeah, they're not trying to make me happy. No. <laughs> and I think that's okay. But I want to just, you know, in terms of your process, you know, and I think that's really interesting about that person in, you know, that romantic image of you taking a photo in the fog and... And I love a fog too, mm -hmm. but it's different when you're in the forest in the fog. Mm. But then also with a really large German shepherd <laughs> that you're Shout wrangling. Shout out to ghost. <laughs> Shout out to ghost. <laughs> that you're wrangling as well just before you get to work, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But that's only one layer of the image mm -hmm. process making because I remember 
asking you a little while ago, going, hold on, but there's all these marks or there's these kind of like extra things. So can you, without being, you know, I mean, I'm happy for you to get super technical. I love the technical. But what is the process? Like the, not the methodology mm-hmm. or any of that stuff, but the actual like, you know, take the picture yeah. with the big camera. And then what do you do? Well, I have a I have developing tanks at home, so I develop in my tiny laundry with both the cat and dog watching me Excellent. impatiently. Um, I shoot generally with HP5 Ilford solely because it's affordable. So I think one thing that has kind of shaped my practice as well is that you know I've always worked, I've always had two or three jobs. I'm down to like two now, so I'm quite proud of myself. Well yeah. But I certainly have never had the luxury of you know being able to shoot as much as I want, or even necessarily in the formats that I've wanted to. But I've found something that works for me, and then I home develop. So I home develop generally with like D76 um, or whatever is available on Catch of the Day. <laughs> to be honest, because that's where I get my stuff from because <laughs> I have to pay. That's so great. And then it's interesting because the kind of marks that you're speaking of were like a real hallmark of extraordinary experiences. And they actually started during lockdown when I was developing my films. I don't have a scanner and I couldn't leave the house to go and use a scanner, even though I could find one. So I began photographing my work up against my negative, sorry, up against a window and then converting them. And that's really where that's I was so like, cool. hang on a minute, there's, and I don't clean my windows. <laughs> that's so cool. And I think that's really where it started. And then I really leaned into it and started to do, you know, crazy things with my negatives and become, a, and, and also there's post-processing as well. But there was something again about letting go of any sort of sense of perfection, mm. um, which has been really exciting and really... Um, so you're playing. Very much playing the whole, and look... A lot of photographers, a lot of people, and it's probably quite topical at the moment, hate Instagram. And certainly when Instagram started, everyone's like, it's going to be the end of everything. For me, something I always tell my students is when I graduated, you had to like fax, <laughs> fax someone, set up a meeting, go in with your folio. Instagram is incredible because you can upload your work and it can be seen by literally millions of people. The goal of me using Instagram as much as I do isn't really about people seeing the work, but it is about me kind of one-upping myself, I would say. So it is about me making work that doesn't look exactly like what I'd made, you know, the week before or the month before. Or It's a place for me, I suppose, to journal as mm. well. It just is a public place to journal. But I think part of that playfulness has meant that I can put things on there and you know, I've actually built a really beautiful community on Instagram of people who are like, oh, you know, have you seen this or what about this or you should try out for this? And it's been a really lovely kind of organic experience. But, of course, it's ridiculous because I'm shooting all these large formats and they end up on a phone screen. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> but sometimes people let me print them too, so. <laughs> yes. And I have to admit, your recent, you were included in a recent show at the CCP in Melbourne and you printed really large mm. and it was really lovely to see. And I feel like that is the little secret or quiet thing that you have in your back pocket with shooting on film mm. and post-processing the way you are and scanning and what mm. have you, is that, you know, we could totally line the side of a building with one of yes, your please. prints <laughs> and that would be pretty amazing. But you know, you're able to do that. You're not You're not working on smaller formats. Mm. And I think the thing that I also like is that, I guess, uh, intersection of analogue and digital coming together through your process. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about photo books because mm. that feels like it's sort of your thing at the moment. And I read somewhere, another photographer, I feel terrible, I can't remember their name, but that that was kind of their chosen form in the mm. end over years because they love the intimacy of the actual photo book and the fact that you could walk away and carry it and have dog-eared pages mm. or pass it round and extraordinary experiences and then beware of people who dislike cats, which was recently launched here at that CCP show and now even more recently Phenomena, mm. which I'm yet to actually see except for Instagram versions of it. Why the photo book and how do you think that it speaks to the themes and the ideas that you are presenting in the work? Well, I think my shift into photo books also kind of coincided with my career. So I work as an academic and I work at Swinburne and I work in the design course and my students make photo books. And I think, which you would know as well as um, a teacher, quite often you learn a lot from, from what you're teaching but also from students, from their triumphs but also from their mistakes. You know, sometimes I'd be looking at a student's work, I'd be like, just move that image over there. They didn't want to, they didn't want to listen to me, fine. But I'd be like, oh, but we could try this, we could play with this. Or 
you know, on the other side, I would have students who are so creative and so brilliant and they do these things I couldn't even imagine and I get so excited. I had a student last year hand bind her book. Wow. (laughs) And printed on all these different papers and it was just like, oh, this is delicious, like this is so beautiful. Not necessarily what would work for my work but this role gave me a real appreciation, I think, for the craft of bookmaking. And I think as a photographer, it's a funny thing because you've got your commercial work which has its output wherever it is but it's something that you know, you and I speak about, do you exhibit? Do you put your work in spaces and in walls? For me, though I've really enjoyed doing that, I will hold my hands up to that that's not necessarily the way I think. I'm a maker more than a presenter, whereas books certainly do feel like a way that I can make and present all at once in a considered, in a directive, in a controlled environment Mm. as well when I've exhibited I've always been I'm really nervous at openings I like artist talks I have frozen peers actually see me frozen (laughs) at artist talk think about that at three in the morning sometimes but I think the difference is with the book is that you can actually direct people through the story and of course they can you know they can flick through the book the way that they want to but you're sort of telling them the story that you want you want them to read And so for me, it's kind of been this absolute revelation of a way to work. So Extraordinary Experiences is a very simple looking book. It sort of looks like a little scrapbook, which was a deliberate choice because the work is really complex and layered. And I loved the idea of packaging it up in this thing that was really simple and Mm. easy. Beware of People Who Just Like Cats is is a different sort of a publication. It's a lot smaller. Matt and I played with the idea of kind of fold outs and the work sort of spilling out, which is something I'm really interested in moving forward with. And then Phenomena was an incredible experience where these brilliant photo book makers and publishers, Origini Edizioni, contacted me and said, we would love to work on a book with you. And I think because it was my third book, yeah. I was happy to say, actually, just hear the images, do what you want. Wow. Because mm. I was going to say, I know you and Matt work really closely together. Mm. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to see dummy copies and things like that. Whereas, yeah, so I, because I was thinking, were you doing Zoom meetings? Were you like sending stuff back and forth? How did that work? Well, I think they understandably didn't really believe me <laughs> when I said you can do whatever you want. I think they probably were like, oh, you know. Um, well, they might have wanted your input, Yeah, they might you know, have wanted my like, opinion yeah. as well, but they probably also had an expectation. They work with artists all the time. They make some, you know, they've worked with some very famous artists as well. But I was just really ready to let go. And I love what they do as well and I trust them. So we certainly collaborated on the sequencing, on the ethos behind the work. Yeah. But it was the most incredible experience. I don't, you'll see the book soon. But to be able to work with people that... I felt like they completely understood me through my work. So the book, it looks very different to the other two books. It's not dark at all. It has a little gold. It has peach coloured through it. Wow. It even has a unicorn stamp in it. It's like they... They, <laughs> they totally, they know, totally who you are. know who I am. Um, <laughs> but it's like they... It, it, and not to say that Matt doesn't or not to say that the other books don't have that as well, but it's like they understood the magic in what I do as well and the kind of the, the way I see the world, though I do celebrate the beauty of melancholy it excites me I'm constantly in awe of the natural world a lot of the images that I make as well are about animals and animals are very important to me and the connection that we have with animals connection I have with animals is something that I need every single day so the book kind of became a celebration of that but it's an interesting thing because now I sort of don't know I look at I look at these books and I think well how would I yeah, how would I move into like another field? Like, would I want to exhibit or would I? But I think there's just something about making a book and holding it in your little hands and opening it up and then knowing that people, being really fortunate, people around the world have bought it. Mm. And that's a really... Yes, I remember, um, I think I saw Matt sort of saying, you know, we only have like one copy left (laughs) of Beware of People Who Dislike Cats. Like, who's in, you know? I mean, it's to me it's so... Scary, and I, you know, we, I just spoke to Tammy Law in the previous mm. episode, and she also loves the photo book. I just kind of go, I have nowhere to begin with a photo book. You know, I think I've I've had many conversations with you about that, and it's yeah. like, oh, do I try now? And I'm like, I really don't. Where you know, I'll have a show, yeah, every other year because for me, I just I think. Yeah, that's my comfort spot, mm. you know. I've got a really long history of exhibiting and also exhibiting other people's mm. work, and yeah, I. I own a lot of photo books Mm. and a lot of really different photo books. But I think there is 
the freedom I feel like that you're, you know, in that control and that ability to tell the narrative, I just kind of go, oh, I wouldn't know where I'd have to start. And I think that idea of what you just did in the most recent one for Phenomena, that would be my happy spot. Like, here the images, yeah. off you go. go. for it. You work it out. And know that you're in good hands. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing I wanted to ask was that animal kind of aspect, you know, you live in the Dandenong Ranges, mm-hmm. you're out in the environment, you do wildlife rescue work, you are really involved. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's something that over time that has developed and, you know, you kind of understanding and inclusion into your work or do you think that's just something that is, you know, a Morgana trait and now you just get to share it with us and put it into the work? I think it is so core to who I am. I sort of say, not wanting to sound naff, but I sort of say I have three loves of my life. The first was animal. I just came out of the womb loving animals, like a lot of us do. And I think it's a connection to my heritage. I think it's a connection to our ancestors. Mm. I think that being away from animals is an unnatural state for all of us, to be honest, but definitely for me. And then I discovered photography, which was my next love. So being able to put the two of them together has been really special. I was always making photos of animals. I just wasn't really showing them as oh, much. Wow. Okay, um, yeah. And I think I had wanted to be a wildlife photographer that had been sort of, you know, I guess pre wanting to be a darkroom tech. But I didn't have, again, I didn't really have the finances or the guidance to know how to do that. But I think... I could photograph animals all day, every day. And a lot of, it's been interesting, some of my students are like, well, how do you get so close to them? How do you, but I think animals, animals read energy. They have to, it's a, uh, a evolutionary survival trait. They need to understand if you are there to harm them or not, and they can sense it. And I think they know I'm not gonna harm them. So they're fine with having me around. And I thank them when I photograph them and I speak to them in the language obviously they can't understand, but, but maybe there's some, some level of some sense of them knowing, okay, this is comforting, this is calm. I sort of the other day I messaged a friend, I'm like, I just need to go out and photograph animals. Like I just need to go find some, <laughs> find some animals to photograph. And then funnily enough I was um, walking in the bush and I saw a fox and I was like, oh, hey, buddy. I didn't take a very good photo of him, but I was like, you know. Yeah. It's like they knew, they knew that um, I needed to find someone to photograph. You said you had three loves. So oh, that's my husband. Oh, good. Go, Doug. <laughs> good. So talking about animals and spaces, really, you're, you've recently started a PhD mm-hmm. here around the misrepresentation of mm-hmm. kangaroos. So how does that fit? Because I am your supervisor. Yes, you are. I'll put that out there now. I know that you've been working with AI mm. and really training AI mm-hmm. to create images of the kangaroo. Mm-hmm. It's so different to... Mm-hmm. AI, that is, is so different to your really large format cameras. But the content is, I think, in a way that another step, another or extension is probably Mm. the better word. The work is another extension of what you are doing in your fine art Mm -hmm. practice or personal practice. But why the kangaroo and why AI? Well, it's an interesting thing, actually, just before when you were saying the thing about the playfulness with the book, mm. I was like, oh, that's why I'm using AI, because it's playful. So thank you for that. I'll put that in my document. So the kangaroo specifically is because there is no other animal that is so lauded as an icon and, you know, slaughtered and also subject to animal abuse as the kangaroo. So I feel like as an icon for what human, the cruelty humans can inflict on animals on our relationship with animals and how it's become so skewed. I can't think of another animal other than the kangaroo. I mean, there's animals that people eat. There's cows, there's chickens, but they even they don't get misrepresented. People don't think cows are violent, but in kind of the daily life, in the vernacular of Australia, people think kangaroos are violent animals. And I guess when I started to realise this and recognise this, I was questioning why. Why are these animals that are very, very timid, that form intense social bonds, that actually have been proven to be as smart as, if not smarter than dogs, and that's kind of another thing, the way we rate intelligence of animals. Why are they being, you know, they're presented to the world as a tourist kind of draw card, they're on our coat of arms, and three million of them at least are killed every year for dog food and for leather. So focusing on the kangaroo, I think, was also a chance for me to think about it's one thing to make really beautiful photos and it's one thing, I think, to pay reverence to animals, but I'm also interested in activism around animals and around changing the kind of human exceptionalistic 
views that a lot of us have that, you know, humans are the top and everything else is underneath us. I don't believe in that. I believe in biocentrism, which is everything is absolutely equal, that a kangaroo's life is not really worth less or more than mine. It's all the same. So the interest specifically in kangaroos came because, as you said, I live near many, many mobs of kangaroos. I see them every day and I realised that I don't know how to interact with them. Even though I'm an animal lover, even though I'm a person that, you know, a cat, a dog, chicken, horse, any other animal, I would have no problem interacting with them. I realised I can't really read the cues of kangaroos. And I'd never really experienced being around them despite being, you know, a person who's lived in this country her whole life. That was kind of the start with kangaroos. And then AI has become this really playful way to explore their representation because I guess there's a big part of me that wants to and sort of does try to take really beautiful black and white large format photos of kangaroos. But I guess for the purpose of this research, I wonder if that's kind of feeding a different type of propaganda, which is, you know, they are beautiful and that's why we shouldn't touch them. Whereas with AI... I can get really playful. I can be like, well, no, they're smart and they're funny and mm. they're clever and they are. It's not, it's not about their aesthetic anymore. It's just about they are what they are and that's why they should be protected from harm in the same way that everyone and everything on this planet really should be. It's been really interesting with the AI because I have gotten a lot of flack for it, which is really? been... Really? Oh, yeah, yes. Wow. Yeah. A lot of flack for it. A lot of people... It's a very interesting thing doing a PhD topic that people are opinionated on. I don't think a lot of people I know who did PhDs necessarily Mm. had kind of people chiming in saying, Rue's a pest, so you shouldn't be using AI. Um, Yeah, well, yeah, on both fronts. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't tell a lot of people that I'm doing it anymore. (laughs) sorry. Uh, um, Don't hit me up on Instagram about it. I have a small following (laughs) at this point. Um, Interesting, though, because I think that that's why it's so interesting as a PhD, but also to that thing of it makes me think about my engagement with the kangaroo and or non-engagement with the mm. kangaroo, you know, just that thing of going, oh, yeah, it's the icon, yeah, mm. we have fluffy toys that tourists love to buy and take home and it's a funny word, kangaroo. Mm. Um, but also the AI thing, you know, I guess maybe because I'm a teacher as well, I always think, well, it's just another form of expanded practice. Mm -hmm. I know there's been lots of people that don't think it's photography. Some people think it's image making and they really want to delineate that. Some people don't even think it's that. Mm -hmm. I guess I probably haven't come with an opinion because for me it just feels like another tool Mm -hmm. being able to communicate what we want to say Mm -hmm. and how we want to say it. But also to having experienced the journey that you've made where some of those early images of kangaroos didn't look like kangaroos. They looked like ostriches and foxes and rabbits and weird human kind of things, you know, to a journey eight months later where mm. probably because of you they look really like mm. kangaroos. And, and But not like photographs of kangaroos. They look like, you know, really... I guess that AI kind of glossy looking version of a kangaroo that would be great for a fashion mag. Mm-hmm. But seeing that development over that time, I think the thing for me that when I do look at the work that you're making, it just constantly makes me kind of go, oh, that's another version of looking at a kangaroo. Mm-hmm. That's another version of how we could potentially visualise as you say, a really timid mm. animal. And I, because I live in the Macedon Ranges, you know, I see them all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're very normal to me. I don't even blink, really. Mm-hmm. If anything, I get excited and go, ooh, yeah. I want to take a photo <laughs> because I'm a photographer, you know. But I also think that is the that's the nice side and obviously the downside is all the roadkill mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or all the animal cruelty mm-hmm. around it. And I think that tandem or the conundrum between that makes us as artists, as people, aware and also responsible. Mm. And I feel like that's some of the work, I guess, all the way through for me. I think that's the trajectory line that I was wondering and, and hoping for maybe you to speak about is that authenticity of being animal or otherwise, or even just the landscape that we situate, you know, you constantly, I guess, I feel like you're calling us into account Mm. every time, but you do it in a really, yeah, emotional, beautiful kind of way. And, you know, I 
definitely from coming from me, if anyone knows my work, is, you know, I, I like making beautiful mm. images and I don't see that as a downfall at mm. any, you know, I know other people don't necessarily want that aesthetic. But for me, the work is constantly, of yours, is constantly going, it is beautiful, but there's all this depth. Mm. There's all this concern and this agency and also, yeah, you're calling me into account and going, what are you doing about it? Mm. And I guess is that something that you think the PhD aims to further refine? Yes, definitely. I think, you know, it's a really interesting thing, as you know, because you've done a PhD, it's a really Mm. interesting thing embedding yourself in research as well and starting to understand, you know, it's like you have these these thoughts and being able to build upon these thoughts with these incredible philosophers and thinkers and and then in my case quite literally like scientists you know both in the AI and also in zoology talking about animal behavior and I think that for me and for you people who love animals and people who've been around animals I guess for me to realize that we knew so little as well has kind of expanded my ideas about yeah what photography can do the usefulness of photography that's something my old supervisor used to say to me a lot like you know what's the usefulness of photography and I think part of the usefulness can be beauty I think Mm. it can be about bringing people in and making people think and I yeah it's it's sort of been a really fascinating thing using AI because as you said it's so glossy it doesn't look like what I well I'm kind of getting there now where they're starting to look more Mm, like what I do I've sort of figured out a thing to make it look a bit more um but it's quite a it's an interesting field to work in because I think so much about representation as well and about why certain animals are photographed more. Well, there's an incredibly long history of art, of animals in art, sorry, but certainly not kangaroos. Mm. You know, there's other animals, there's, you know, there's a lot of paintings of horses around the world as, as status. But why has this particular animal been kind of left out of that? And I think AI is a way to, to yeah, explore how to force people to look at them and think about them in a way that maybe they haven't before. Yeah. So last question, mm-hmm. what next? Oh, gosh, Pia. Well, I've been working on um, there's a colony of flying foxes near me, 40,000 flying foxes wow. near where I live and I go and I visit them all the time and have a chat. And I kind of, they, they live along a creek because, you know, they, they're always attracted to water, obviously. It's where they, um, how they sustain themselves. Um, but the creek leads up to where I photograph every day. So I've been looking into the history of where I photograph every day, the, the pre-colonial history, which was very long and very rich, and also actually the incredible amounts of violence that were inflicted in this particular oh, wow. area. Okay. And very much so it was um, the centre of the native police corps, which I feel sick even saying that. There were murders there at at the time of invasion, but also in the 80s and 90s. It was a place that was known. It's 500 hectares. But because I live in a very working-class area, it's certainly not genteel. It's certainly not a place that is respected in the way that I think it should be. So I've been working on a slow-burn project called The Paddocks, which is around that place. Aesthetically, look, maybe people look at it and be like, oh, she's doing the same thing. To me, it sort of (laughs) feels like... Again, a chance to pay reverence to this place, to see the specialness of this place. But what I'm trying to challenge myself to do as well, which actually came out of an artist talk I did, is to show that this place that I think is deeply beautiful also is a place of great violence and how that violence can leave a trace. But also, you know, what does that violence mean? Is it human violence? You know, every night there's animal violence there. There's the violence of people who are walking through the space, having fights. There's all sorts of things. And then, yeah, just thinking about how we exist in these these spaces as humans in 2023. Thank you so much, Rogana. Thank you so much, Pia. Out of the Frame is supported by RMIT University Press Play Studio, is produced by Pia Johnson, sound engineering by Alex Edward, music by Steph O'Hara, and graphic design by Brent Lederwitz.